once again, welcome back to Kohelet. In this episode, we are continuing chapter 27 on the atonement. And we've been dealing with the question, was it necessary for Christ to die? We're going to find the atonement just as a review in the following way. The atonement is the work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. So if we ask the question, What was the ultimate cause that led to Christ's coming to earth and dying for our sins? The answer to that question is both the love and justice of God that proceed from his nature as God. So again, just to review, it wasn't strictly necessary for Christ to come and die in the sense that nothing compelled God to do this work outside of himself. But since God did determine to save some people, then it became necessary for Christ, or we should say it was necessary for Christ to die in order for men to be saved. So we covered all of that in the prior episode, if you need to go back and review that. Today we're going to discuss a few other aspects of the atoning work of Jesus, particularly related to his death and suffering. And we're going to begin with the point that the penalty for our sin, which Christ suffered, was inflicted upon Jesus by God the Father. In other words, again, if we ask a question, who required Christ to pay the penalty for our sins? The answer given in Scripture is that the penalty was inflicted by God the Father as he represented the interests of the Trinity in redemption. So God's justice required that sin be paid for, and among the members of the Trinity, It was God the Father whose role was to require that payment. And God the Son, Jesus, voluntarily took upon himself the role of bearing the penalty for sin. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That is, God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, The Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Isaiah then goes on to say a little bit later, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. In other words, God put Jesus to grief. God the Father crushed Christ the Son. And think about this. If you ever had a reason to doubt God's love for you, well, Consider for a moment that not only did Jesus willingly accept the penalty due to you for your sin as an act of love, but God the Father also willingly inflicted this pain upon his Son for your sake. In other words, you are so valuable in the eyes of God the Father that he was willing to inflict this penalty on his own Son for your sake. What an incredible proof of God's enduring and faithful love for us. Next, as we're thinking about some other aspects of the atonement, we can assert that Jesus himself did not suffer eternally on the cross, but he made complete payment for sin in that sacrifice on the cross. So if we had to make payment for our own sin, we would have to suffer eternally under God's wrath. And we're going to address this point in further detail when we get down into chapter 56. But Jesus did not suffer eternally. 
And there are two reasons why he didn't suffer eternally. Two reasons for the difference between our suffering needing to be eternal and his suffering not. First, if we had to suffer for our own sins, we can never repay the full penalty for sin against an infinite God because of our finite nature. Furthermore, as fallen creatures, our suffering for sin would only lead us into more sin against God through the process of our suffering, continually adding to our guilt. We would continue to offend God even in the process of our suffering because our suffering would press us further into sin. But the second reason why there's a difference between Christ's suffering not being eternal and ours being eternal Jesus didn't need to suffer eternally because as both fully God and fully man, he could represent us as man while bearing the penalty for our sin as God. In other words, Jesus being fully God was able to bear the punishment for our sin to completion. As Isaiah 53 11 says, out of the anguish of his soul, God shall see and be satisfied. As a result, then, Jesus declared on the cross just before he gave up his spirit, it is finished. And since Jesus paid the full penalty, there's no longer any condemnation for us who believe. So Romans 8.1 can declare, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the point here is actually a simple one. God saw that the penalty which Jesus paid for sin was sufficient. And Jesus offered that payment on our behalf because no payment we could ever make would be sufficient. Hebrews 9, 25 through 28 deals with this concept. And I'm not going to read it all here. I'll simply say it declares Jesus paid the penalty for our sin once and only once. And that was enough. So this is another point that should be a great encouragement to us because it helps us understand there's no more penalty for sin left to be paid. As Christians, we don't need to have any remaining fear of condemnation or punishment because Christ finished the work of our salvation through his atoning death. Even the difficult things that we suffer in this life, we can be confident are not God punishing us because Christ already punished or Christ already suffered all of the punishment for our sin. So let's transition and discuss the meaning of the blood of Christ, which is an important concept. The New Testament frequently connects the blood of Jesus with our redemption. In 1 Peter 1, 18-19, we see an example of this. It says, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is language and imagery that comes out of the Old Testament. It has to do primarily with Christ's blood as the evidence of God's removal of our judicial guilt before him. But through the blood of Christ, we're told in the New Testament that our consciences are cleansed. We gain bold access to God in worship and prayer. We're progressively cleansed from any remaining sin. We have victory over the accusations of Satan, and we're ultimately rescued out of our sinful way of living. The scripture references for each of these assertions that I just made, they're found in Dr. Grudem's book on page 719, if you want to look into those in detail. The point is that the blood of Jesus was shed on our behalf as a judicial execution, whereby his life was taken in place of ours, 
so that we might receive favor from God in place of wrath. And this idea is woven all throughout scripture, beginning in the Old Testament with the sacrificial system that God gave to his people Israel that foreshadowed the crucifixion and ultimately that atoning work of Jesus on the cross. Now, this view of Christ's atoning work that we've been discussing uh, is often called penal substitutionary atonement. Christ's death was penal in the sense that he bore a penalty when he died. His death was also a substitution in that he stood in our place as a substitute for us when he died. And this is the orthodox and biblical understanding of the atonement held by Christian theologians. Um, Unfortunately, we'll have to spend a few minutes addressing some alternate theories and ideas that sometimes creep into churches. But penal substitutionary atonement is the biblical view of the atonement. Yet in a relatively modern movement, some people have denied penal substitutionary atonement. They claim that this biblical view is inconsistent with the love of God. And I would say this is a theologically liberal assertion. It denies the clear evidence from scripture. It emphasizes God's love at the expense of his justice. And in essence, uh, the view that denies penal substitutionary atonement holds that Christ dying as a substitute on the cross for our sins, being punished by God the Father, would be a kind of divine cosmic child abuse. A vengeful father punishing his son for an offense that he didn't even commit. One scholar who holds this view has written, Such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love and makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and refuse to repay evil with evil. That quote, that statement, fails to really address Romans 1 through 3. If you want to go and read that, you'll see pretty clearly. It also fails to recognize that all of God's actions must be consistent with all of his attributes. So that was an idea that we discussed way back in the early episodes of this chapter as we looked at the attributes of God. And what that means is that you you cannot diminish the wrath and justice of God by simply asserting that God is love. God is not divided in his being or his nature. Dr. Grudem goes into a lengthy discussion of this denial of the orthodox view of penal substitutionary atonement on pages 719 through 722. He cites a few modern writers who oppose this traditional view. I'm not going to get into all of that. You'll see this episode is already going to be a little bit long. But if you want, you can go read that section in his book. The point is that to deny the clear teaching of Scripture concerning the nature of the atonement is really to deny Scripture itself. As Dr. Grudem asserts, to attack the idea of penal substitutionary atonement is to attack the central message of the Bible. Amen. I mean, this is the gospel. That mankind is under the wrath of God for our sin because God is just. But God, being rich in love and mercy, sent his own son to bear the just penalty for our sin so that Christ suffered and died as a punishment for our sin in our place so that the evil of our sin might be atoned for and the wrath of God appeased. And only through this work can we be reconciled to God in right relationship and redeemed out from the punishment for sin that we justly deserve. Now, to assert that penal substitutionary atonement is central to the teaching of the Bible 
is not to say that it's the only aspect of the nature of the atonement. The atoning work of Christ is a really complex event that has several effects on us as Christians who have placed our faith in Jesus. And on page 722, Dr. Grudem summarizes four aspects of the atonement that stem from four needs that we have as sinners. Number one, we deserve to die as a penalty for our sin. Two, we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. Three, we're separated from God by our sins. And four, we're in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. So these four needs are met by Christ's death in the following four ways. First, sacrifice. To pay the penalty of death that we deserved because of our sins, Christ died as a sacrifice for us. Hebrews 9.26 says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Second, we have a need for propitiation. To remove from us the wrath of God that we deserved, Christ died as a propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation we've already looked at. It has to do specifically with the removal of God's wrath. 1 John 4.10 tells us, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Third, we have a need for reconciliation because we are alienated from God. And so to overcome our separation from God, we needed someone to provide reconciliation and thereby bring us back into fellowship with God. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-19 says that God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And then fourth, redemption. Because as sinners were in bondage to sin and to Satan, we needed someone to provide redemption and to redeem us out of that bondage. So we would no longer be slaves to sin and to Satan. So we're ransomed out of the bondage of sin and Satan, which is to say that a price was paid to redeem us from our captivity. Jesus declares in Mark 10:45, For even the Son of Man also came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Although the Bible speaks about us being in bondage to sin and to Satan, this does not mean that the ransom was paid to sin or Satan, since neither sin nor Satan have the power to demand any such payment from God. Rather, we should understand that the penalty for our sin was paid by Jesus Christ, and it was received and accepted by God the Father, against whom our sin had made us debtors. But we need to be careful here not to suggest that it was God who held us in bondage. So Jesus speaks of giving his life as a ransom, but we must think carefully on this point because the idea of ransom doesn't fully do justice to how the Bible speaks about the atoning work of Jesus. It's probably best to kind of keep it simple and just say that a price was paid, that's the death of Christ, and the result was that we were redeemed from bondage. Part of that bondage includes the power of Satan. 1 John 5.19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And Colossians 1.13 asserts that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us 
to the kingdom of his beloved son. And we're delivered from bondage to sin because in Romans 6.14 we read, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So we're delivered out from under the bondage to the guilt of sin and also from the bondage of sin's ruling power in our lives, which is great news because it means that we as Christians can truly be victorious over the sin that is constantly tempting us. Now, we've already asserted that the most biblically accurate view of the atonement is penal substitutionary atonement. But there have been a few other views offered through history. Let me quickly touch on four of those alternative views mentioned by Dr. Grudem in his book. First, you have the ransom to Satan theory, which was proposed as early as the 2nd or 3rd century AD by the theologian Origen. And according to this view, the ransom Christ paid to redeem us was actually paid to Satan, who has dominion over us by virtue of our sin. And there's no direct validation for this view in scripture. And it wrongly claims that Satan, rather than God, requires payment for our sin. So it views Satan as having far more power than he actually does, according to scripture. And it really diminishes the justice of God as the one to whom our debt of sin is owed. And ultimately, this view fails to account for the scripture passages that teach that Jesus was a propitiation offered to God on our behalf. The second view is called the moral influence theory, and this one goes back to about 1000 AD. It claims that God did not require a payment of a penalty for sin, but rather that Christ's death was simply a way in which God showed how much he loves humanity by identifying with our suffering even to the point of death. So, in this view, Christ's death is merely a showcase of God's love meant to draw from us a response where we would love him and be forgiven. And the issue here should probably be obvious at this point. It totally fails to account for all the scripture passages that speak about Christ's suffering in terms of sin and propitiation. And as we're going to see when we evaluate the other views that are still left, this is often the issue that we encounter. Just, they just fail to do justice to what the Bible teaches about why Christ suffered and died. The third view is called the example theory. And this view goes back to the 1500s. Like the moral influence theory that we just talked about, the example theory also denies that God's justice required payment for sin. Instead, those who hold this view claim that Christ's death simply provides us with an example of how we should trust and obey God perfectly, like Jesus did, even if that trust leads to a horrible death. So while the moral influence theory teaches us about how much God loves us, the example theory teaches us how we should live in light of the cross. And we might find some kind of support for this view in 1 Peter 2.21, which says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Now, obviously, we wouldn't argue against the point that Christ does give us an example to follow in his death. The issue is whether this is the totality of what the cross accomplishes for us. And we would deny that. 
Uh, again, this view fails to account for all the scripture passages that speak about Christ's death as a payment for sin. It also fails to account for the teaching that Christ bore our sin and was a propitiation for sin. And so in the end, this view really argues that man can save himself by merely following Christ's example. And it fails ultimately to provide a way for the penalty of our sin to actually be paid. So yes, Christ did give us an example to follow in his death, teaching us to trust God. But since this view fails to account for the penalty of sin and the justice of God and the need for atonement, it should be rejected by Orthodox Christians, by believers, biblically faithful Christians, as a valid theory of the nature of the death and atonement of Christ. Fourth and finally, we have the governmental theory. And this view also goes back to the 1500s. It claims that God did not actually have to require payment for sin at all. Governmental theory argues that since God is omnipotent, he can forgive sins without the payment of penalty. The purpose of Christ's death then was for God to just demonstrate that his laws had been broken and as the moral lawgiver, some kind of penalty would be required whenever his laws were broken. So in this view, Christ didn't actually pay any uh, payment for our sins on the cross, any punishment. He rather suffered simply to show that when God's laws are broken, that some penalty must be paid. And like all the other views we've discussed that come up short, this view fails at the same points, not adequately addressing all the passages of Scripture that deal with Christ being a propitiation for our sins. Further, this view implies we cannot actually trust Christ for the forgiveness of our sins because Christ did not actually make complete payment for those sins. So his redemptive work is seriously diminished by this teaching of the atonement. It also diminishes the just nature of God and his unchangeableness by claiming that God can simply overlook sin without judgment or penalty. And at this point, you might ask, like, why even discuss these other views? Why do they matter? And I'll offer two reasons. One, because these views do creep into the teaching of Christian leaders from time to time. They creep into the views of Christians from time to time. And it's helpful for us to be able to recognize them for what they are so we can avoid them and so that we can accurately hold fast to what the Bible really says. And second, understanding these views help us appreciate the wonder of the truth that Christ gave his life to suffer the just wrath of God in our place, displaying the complete love and justice of our perfect God who saved sinners by grace through the atoning work of his son. We're going to turn a bit of a corner now and deal with a question that often comes up when discussing the death of Jesus. And the question is, did Christ descend into hell when he died? This is actually a fairly common view, although the phrase Jesus descended into hell is nowhere found in the Bible. The idea probably comes from the Apostles' Creed, which says that Christ was crucified, died, and was buried he descended into hell the third day he rose again from the dead. If you've ever recited the Apostles' Creed at church, then maybe you're familiar with that statement. And what's important to understand is that an examination of the biblical evidence shows that Jesus did not suffer any further after his death on the cross. 
Before we get into that evidence, let's just briefly discuss the origin of this phrase, he descended into hell, which we find in the Apostles' Creed. So to give all the complex and muddy historical background to this phrase, Dr. Grudem refers to the great church historian Philip Schaff, who's written an extensive eight-volume work on the history of the church, in addition to a very uh, clear analysis of the Apostles' Creed. Pointing to Dr. Schaff's work, Dr. Grudem has a chart on pages 726 and 727 where he analyzes how the Apostles' Creed gradually took form through uh, beginning in AD 200 and kind of concluding around AD 750. That's a very, very long period of history, unlike the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedonian definition that we looked at back in chapter 26. Those uh, statements were written or approved by a single church council at one specific time. In contrast, the Apostles' Creed went through a very long developmental process. Summarizing Dr. Grudem's work here, it wasn't until AD 650 that the phrase, he descended into hell, was used widely in the Apostles' Creed to suggest that Jesus actually went to hell. Before that point, the teaching was only that Jesus descended into the grave. Yet because the Apostles' Creed included this phrase from 650 AD onward, many theologians have attempted to kind of make an explanation for it. Where did it come from? Why is it in there? And they do this by suggesting that although Jesus did not literally descend into hell, he suffered the torment of hell as he experienced the severity of God's wrath or some other explanation kind of like that. In other words, rather than amend the Apostles' Creed to be more biblically accurate, some theologians attempt to defend the Apostles' Creed and make an explanation for why this phrase is there. For modern American Christians, this phrase in the Apostles' Creed that states that Jesus descended into hell is troubling. And I would say that as we look at the biblical evidence, we'll see that it's also misleading. So Dr. Grudem spends six pages addressing this issue, and it's really beyond the scope of this podcast to fully represent the discussion here. If you're really curious about this subject, then I would refer you to pages 729 through 736 of Dr. Grudem's book. Here, I'll simply say there are primarily five scripture passages that might support the idea that Christ descended into hell. You have Acts 2.27, Romans 10.6-7, Ephesians 4.8-9, 1 Peter 3.18-20, and 1 Peter 4.6. Probably the verse people listening to this podcast might be most familiar with is 1 Peter 4.6, which says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Dr. Grudem offers some pretty solid and careful evaluation of all of the passages that I just mentioned. And in the end, he concludes, none of them clearly and explicitly teach that Jesus went to hell or even that he preached to the dead. Uh, you could hear in that verse I just read, 1 Peter 4, that there's no reference to hell there. Uh, it does speak about the gospel being preached to the dead, but it seems best to understand 1 Peter 4, 6 as saying 
that the gospel was preached not to dead people, not to people after they died, but to people who in the end died and faced judgment. But not only do all of these passages fail to clearly teach that Jesus went to hell, we also have verses that suggest the opposite, in fact. Jesus speaks to the thief on the cross in Luke 23:43, and he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. And also on the cross, Jesus declares, It is finished meaning that there was no additional work to be done. Nothing like suffering in hell was necessary after the cross. A descent into hell would be impossible if hell includes further punishment for sin, since Jesus declared his atoning work to be completed at the cross. All of that to say, the biblical evidence does not support a view that Jesus descended into hell. And although I've only barely touched on Dr. Grudem's arguments here, he believes his arguments for this view to be so strong that he suggests we should actually alter the language of the Apostles' Creed in order to not mislead people. And I agree with that. And all of this should actually be a great comfort to Christians because it means that on the cross, Jesus accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. And when we die, then we can expect to be immediately present with God in heaven because of the atoning work Jesus did on our behalf. So we'll touch on this a little bit more in chapter 41. You'll have to wait for that. The final topic for us to discuss in this chapter is the extent of the atonement. And if you remember at the beginning of the last episode when we began this chapter, I mentioned that there are some things in this chapter that are controversial. Well, the extent of the atonement is going to take us into another one of those areas of controversy. And the question we're addressing can be stated like this. When Christ died on the cross, did he pay for the sins of the entire human race or only for the sins of those he knew would ultimately be saved? Here you really have two primary positions, and I'm going to call them the non-reformed or the uh, reformed position. So the non-reformed position, which we might also call the Arminian position, holds that since scripture repeatedly offers the gospel to all people, and in order for this offer to be genuine, the payment for sins must have already been made and must actually be available for all people. And it logically follows that if the people whose sins Christ paid for is limited, then the free offer of the gospel is also limited, and the offer of the gospel cannot be made to all people without exception. In other words, the non-reformed or the Arminian position claims that in order for the gospel to be a genuine offer, the extent of the atonement cannot be limited and Christ had to actually have paid for the sins of all people. The other side, the reformed position or what we might call the Calvinistic position, argues that if Jesus actually paid for the sins of all people without limit, then it necessarily follows that all people will be saved since Christ's atoning work applies to them. It would be unjust for God to condemn anyone for whom Christ died because their condemnation would be a second judgment if Jesus already experienced judgment on their behalf. Now, if it's objected that this limits the free offer of the gospel, the Reformed reply is that since we don't know for whom Jesus died before they respond to the gospel, the gospel should still be freely offered to all people without exception. 
And the Bible clearly teaches that everyone who repents and believes will be saved. And everyone is called to repent and place their trust in Jesus. Acts 17.30 says that God commands all people everywhere to repent. Finally, the Reformed view argues that God's purposes in redemption were agreed upon within the Trinity, and therefore they will be accomplished. So those whom God planned to save are the same people for whom Christ came to die, and the same people to whom the Holy Spirit will apply the benefits of Christ's redemptive work. So as I mentioned, the Reformed view is sometimes also called the Calvinistic view or even the doctrines of grace. And on this particular point, their theological position is sometimes called limited atonement. Dr. Grudem doesn't really like that term. He thinks it's kind of misleading. So he prefers the term particular redemption because the redemptive work of Jesus was accomplished on behalf of a particular people. This is the view Dr. Grudem holds. I happen to agree with him. We probably won't use the term limited atonement. Instead, we'll stick with this phrase, particular redemption. And Dr. Grudem deals with the extent of the atonement by beginning with his own reformed view on the question, the particular redemption view. So here are the passages he mentions in support of his view. And I'm not going to refer to all of them. I'm only going to refer to a few for the sake of time. You can, again, go look this chapter up, chapter 27. But in John 10, 11, Jesus says, The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Meaning that the atoning work of Christ on the cross applies only to those who are sheep belonging to Jesus. Romans 8, 33-34 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The implied answer here is that nobody can bring any charge against God's elect. And verse 34 points to the death of Christ as that which makes it impossible for anyone to bring a charge against the elect meaning that the death of Christ applies only to the elect. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Who did Christ give his life for? The church. Or you have John 17.9 where Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Or Romans 5.10, which reads, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In other words, those for whom Christ died have been reconciled to God. As I mentioned, those aren't all the verses that Dr. Grudem references, just a few of them. But we'll look at the other view now concerning the other view, the non-reformed view, which we could call general redemption or unlimited atonement, Dr. Grudem explains that there are a number of scripture passages which indicate that in some sense Christ died for the whole world. John the Baptist declares in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that through Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Or 1 Timothy 2.6, 
which says that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. From here, Dr. Grudem lists the points on which both sides of this argument agree. So I've kind of laid it out, right? The reformed position says that the extent of the atonement only applies to those who have faith in Jesus, while the non-reformed position says that in order for the gospel to really be offered to all people, the atonement must in some way apply to all people. So there's a pretty big difference in view there. But Dr. Grudem begins kind of our discussion of these two positions by talking about things on which both sides agree. First, both sides agree that scripture is clear that not everyone will be saved. To hold that position would actually put you outside the very clear teaching of scripture. It would really make you a universalist by denying the doctrine of the judgment and the doctrine of hell. Second, both sides agree that a free offer of the gospel can rightly be made to every person who has ever been born. It is in fact true that whoever wills may come to Christ for salvation, and none who come will be turned away, and the free offer of the gospel is extended in good faith to every person. Third, both sides agree that Christ's death as the infinite Son of God has infinite merit and is itself sufficient to pay the penalty of the sins of as many or as few as God has decreed. So it's not a question of the merit of Christ's suffering and death, but specifically for whom God saw the Son's death to be a real and sufficient payment. So it would seem that the essential question that divides people at this point is this. When Christ died, did he actually pay the penalty only for the sins of those who would believe in him or for the sins of every person who ever lived? From here, Dr. Grudem argues that those who hold to the particular redemption position or the Calvinistic position have stronger arguments on their side. And again, I happen to agree with him. So let's discuss why that's the case. To begin with, those who hold the Arminian or general redemption view sometimes claim that people suffer in hell because of the sin of rejecting Christ, although all their other sins were in fact paid for on the cross. But the problem with this claim is that some have never rejected Christ because they've never even heard of him. These are people who didn't outright reject Christ. They simply never even heard through the gospel proclamation that turning to him was an option. But even more significantly, scripture speaks of eternal punishment in terms of the sins people have done in life, not merely for rejecting Jesus. If you go look at passages like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, and Colossians 3, 5 through 6, you see their lists of sins for which God will judge people. And it's not really mentioned in either of those lists rejecting Christ as the primary reason for which people will be condemned, or we should say the only reason for which people will be condemned. Another problem with the general redemption view is that Christ did not redeem people potentially, but he actually redeemed us as individuals whom he loves. In other words, he completely earned our salvation and paid the penalty for all of our sins on the cross. There isn't really a way to keep that teaching of scripture intact while also claiming that Jesus didn't die for the sin of rejecting him. 
So how do we respond to some of the arguments of those who hold the general redemption view, that unlimited atonement or Arminian view? Particularly all the passages that we mentioned above or a few minutes ago that seem to suggest that Christ died for the whole world or for the sins of all. Doesn't the Bible actually say that? How do we deal with those passages? Well, several passages that speak about the world simply mean that sinners generally will be saved without implying that every single person in the world will be saved. For example, John 1.29, which says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, this doesn't mean Jesus actually removes the sins of every single person in the world. Instead, it means that Christ came to take away sins which are in the world. Or when 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that through Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, it's quite reasonable to understand that verse to mean that sinners generally have been reconciled to God through Christ, the means by which that reconciliation occurred. In other words, verses such as these can reasonably be speaking of groups in general without speaking of individuals in particular. And verses like John 6.51, where Jesus says, The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Passages like this are best understood to refer to the free offer of the gospel to everyone, meaning Christ came to bring redeeming life into the world, but that does not mean, therefore, everyone will receive that life. Or 1 John 2, 2, which says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This could simply mean that the atoning sacrifice of Christ now makes available forgiveness for everyone in the world. In fact, Dr. Grudem offers some insight into the Greek grammar of that verse to show that the preposition for is very general, meaning something like concerning or with respect to. The point being that the verse does not clearly say Jesus actually atoned for the sins of the world, but that he was the vehicle through which any sins in the world must find propitiation. Dr. Grudem goes on like this through pages 740 to 743, offering interpretive explanations for verses in support of the Arminian or general redemption view. I find his arguments very persuasive. If you want to go look at them in his book, Systematic Theology, I encourage you to do that. For the sake of time on our podcast, I would just refer you to those pages. I'm not going to give a rebuttal for each verse that is used in defense of the general redemption or unlimited atonement view. So having made his case for the limited atonement or particular redemption or Calvinistic view, Dr. Grudem concludes chapter 27 on the atonement with some clarifying words and some words of caution regarding this doctrine, because this is a divisive topic and uh, discussions about this particular doctrine can get quite heated. First, Dr. Grudem points out that often this debate centers around attempting to understand the purpose of God in the atonement rather than focusing on what actually happened. In other words, the Arminian view is that God's purpose is to save all people, but God ends up frustrated in that effort by the will, the free will of humans. On the other hand, the Calvinistic position claims God's purpose is to save those whom he has chosen. 
But the truth is, we don't seem to have enough clear biblical evidence to address the atonement like this. Instead, Dr. Grudem suggests we should simply focus on the question, did Christ pay for the sins of all unbelievers who will be eternally condemned? And did he pay for their sins fully and completely on the cross? And if we approach the discussion with that question, the answer definitely has to be no. Christ did not pay for the sins of all unbelievers, even those who will be eternally condemned. And he did not pay for their sins fully and completely on the cross, or they wouldn't be condemned. And it doesn't seem like there should really be any debate about the answer to that question. Second, Dr. Grunham points out that the statements, Christ died for his people only, and Christ died for all people, are both true in some senses, okay? So often you'll hear the Reformed position say things like, Reformed people say things like, Christ died for his people only. And that is true in a sense, right? We can say that Christ died to actually pay the penalty for all the sins of his people only. Unfortunately, though, often when non-reformed people hear this phrase, Christ died for his people only, what they hear is, Christ died so that he could make the gospel available only to a chosen few. And sometimes when people hear that, they're troubled by what appears to be a threat to the free offer of the gospel to every person. So Dr. Grudem suggests that Reformed people should recognize the potential danger for miscommunication in this phrase, that Christ died for his people only, and Reformed people should seek to be precise in exactly what they mean by that. While it is true that the phrase Christ died for his people only is correct in the sense which we discussed a minute ago, that the application of the atonement only actually applies to the people whom God has elected. Unfortunately, the phrase Christ died for his people only is rarely understood that way when it's used. It's meant to sort of claim that the gospel is only exclusively available to the elect. And so reformed people should seek to just use less ambiguous language so that we're being very precise. On the other hand, the sentence that is often used by uh, non-reformed people, Arminian people, when they say Christ died for all people. Well, that is true if it means Christ died to make salvation available to all people, or if it means Christ died to bring the free offer of the gospel to all people. Yes and amen. We would agree with that. The Bible uses language just like that in 1 Timothy 2.6 and 1 John 2.2. And Dr. Grudem points out that it really seems to be only nitpicking that creates controversies when Reformed people reply to this language insisting uh, on being such purists in their speech that they object anytime someone says Christ died for all people. Again, especially when scripture uses language very much like that. Furthermore, we shouldn't object to someone evangelistically saying Christ died for your sins. Unfortunately, I have had Reformed people tell me that Christians shouldn't speak in those terms. But that's ridiculous. If that statement is being made to communicate to people that are not Christians that it is necessary for them to trust in Christ in order to receive the benefits of the gospel offer, then it's perfectly fine to say to somebody, Christ died for your sins and invite them to repent and trust him. The goal here is simply to help sinners realize that salvation is available for everyone 
and that payment of sins is available for everyone. All that is necessary for it to be applied to them is that they would repent and place their trust in Jesus. A third clarification is made by Dr. Grudem where he spells out a number of points that Reformed and non-Reformed people agree on when it comes to the practical and pastoral effects of our words. So we sort of hinted at a few of these, but we'll touch on them in a little bit more detail. Both Reformed and non-Reformed people sincerely want to avoid implying that people will be saved whether they believe in Christ or not. Look, Reformed and non-Reformed people who are truly Christians, truly committed to Scripture, truly believe that Christ is the only way to salvation, both agree that we should be careful not to give people the impression that they'll be saved whether they believe in Christ or not. And it's silly when Reformed people suggest that non-Reformed folks are in danger of implying that all people will be saved regardless of whether they place their trust in Christ. This is not a position actually held by sincere Arminian Christians. So when Arminians say God died for the sins of all people, it's absurd when Reformed people try and claim that that statement is uh, not not making uh, you know is not being biblically faithful, and conversely, it's silly when non-reformed people accuse Calvinistic Christians of suggesting that the elect will be saved irrespective of responding to the gospel, as if we can make this statement that God died for His people only, and therefore we don't need to share the gospel because all of the people that Christ died for will believe whether they respond or not. That's not actually a position held by sincere, thoughtful Calvinists. And so both sides uh, agree um, that the gospel should, in fact, be offered and that a response is necessary. Both sides also agree that we should not suggest there might be some people who come to Christ for salvation, but are turned away because Christ didn't die for them. That's also absurd. Reformed and non-reformed people alike agree that all who come to Christ for salvation will in fact be saved. And it's also safe to say that both sides agree that the offer of the gospel is in fact a real and genuine offer. It is always true that everyone who wants to come to Christ for salvation and actually do come will be saved because God has truly made that invitation for them and has truly made provision in Christ. Finally, it's worth pointing out that this doctrinal point is not a test of Christian orthodoxy, meaning that scripture itself never singles this out as a doctrine of major importance, nor does the Bible make this point the subject of any deep, explicit theological discussion. We should recognize that our knowledge of this issue comes only from incidental references in passages that are primarily concerned about other doctrinal issues. So a balanced perspective and a humble spirit would conclude this is not a doctrine worth dividing Christ's blood-bought people over, especially when the New Testament puts almost no emphasis on the question whatsoever. So we should seek to be faithful to Scripture, and we should discuss over what is the most faithful reading of God's word, but to divide the church over a doctrine that doesn't place itself front and center in the pages of scripture 
is not a healthy endeavor for the church. We should recognize we're dealing with an aspect of God's redemptive work here that's somewhat mysterious, that is beyond our understanding. And that truth should make us humble in how we engage with one another over this question. And I love the way Dr. Grudem ends his chapter discussing this particular point, because Dr. Grudem is, in fact, very Calvinistic, very Reformed in his theology. But he also wants to be careful not to alienate faithful brothers and sisters in Christ over a theological doctrine that is uh, not a primary doctrine taught in the Bible. Well, that's where we will conclude our chapter on the atonement. And I've just realized that my notes for these two episodes on the atonement are 27 pages, which is funny because this is chapter 27 of Dr. Grudem's book. Uh, But at the end here, let's give God praise and thanks that our salvation has been fully and completely secured by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. We kind of ended the chapter discussing uh, a, a significant theological difference of opinion between Reformed and non-Reformed people. But let's not get lost as we conclude this chapter. Let's give God praise and thanks that Jesus atoned for all of our sins on the cross. That the gospel is really and truly available to all people who would come and trust in Jesus for the atonement of their sins that he has really and truly appeased the wrath of God and made propitiation so that we might be redeemed out of our sin. What a blessing it is to receive the love of God as a gracious work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit acting together on behalf of sinners that we might be rescued. Praise God for that. And also, let's be proactive as Christians to offer this good news to anyone and everyone that we encounter. In our next episode, we'll discuss the resurrection and ascension of Christ. As always, if you have any questions about any of this material, you can always email me, grady at maricopasprings.com. But I hope that you'll join us again next time as we get into chapter 28 on the resurrection and ascension. Until next time, blessings. Thank you.